Hey everyone, I'm excited to share this episode with you today. One quick note, for some reason, the audio software we used this time tried to overlay my guests and mine audio a lot. And it's not too noticeable throughout the episode, but especially at the end during the lightning round, you'll notice that we sound like we're talking over each other. We weren't. No one was being rude. As you'll hear, Mo and Jack were awesome guests. For some reason, this just happened. Uh, thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. I'm excited to have with me today, for the first time, two guests on the same podcast. We're, we're really mixing up the format this year, I guess. Um, but today, I have two guests here representing Bicycle Colorado. The, my first guest is Maureen, or Mo McKenna, the Director of Education and Safety for Bicycle Colorado, and her colleague, Jack Todd, Director of Communications. Maureen and Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having me. I am I'm excited to have you both here. Um, it's going to be a fun episode. I've wanted to talk about biking for a little while, bike bikes for a little while. Uh, but first off, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself, Maureen? We'll start with you. Uh, who are you, and what do you do? Sure. Thanks so much for having us here, Jordan. Um, again, Mo McKenna with and the Education and Safety Director with Bicycle Colorado. Um, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Uh, I was a classroom teacher back in Wisconsin uh, for about five years, came out here and taught for a year, uh, got to the point where I, or I got to the point as a teacher where I was looking for a new path, had always been interested in sustainability uh, and found myself um, applying for Bicycle Colorado's education and uh, education manager, program manager position. Uh, and I was thrilled uh, to receive that job, not knowing the world that I was entering and how it would really change my life and how I um, how I viewed the world and and the the world that I I move around in and the city um, the city space and how how streets are designed. And so, after joining Bicycle Colorado, it really flipped a switch and made me realize the the bubble that I lived in and uh, how car centric our world is. Uh, and just so much um, that I wasn't thinking about as I was going about my day-to-day -day life. Um, so this is something that uh, I'm, I'm really passionate about, the work we do in bicycle advocacy. Uh, it blends really well with my, my experience and uh, my history in the classroom and with education. And um, I'm, I'm just thrilled at, at the work our team is doing and I'm excited to share more with you today. And Jack, how about yourself? Yeah, so um, thank, thanks again for having us, Jordan. Um, I am the Director of Communications and Policy at Bicycle Colorado. So I work in the legislature uh, and with state agencies and local governments to pass um, bike-friendly policy and then uh, communicate that, of course. So, so get the word out there, uh, spread the word, and, and help Mo with education projects as well. Um, I think I have a very similar story to Mo where I was, I found myself applying for a role at Bicycle Colorado, not fully aware of uh, the world that I was entering. And, you know, I think most people in bike advocacy, they they start out just by liking bikes. <laughs> and everybody, you know, has those memories of childhood riding bikes and just enjoying it. And, you know, I continued that into adulthood, riding to work and just thought biking was something that that was easy to do and fun to do. And then you enter into the advocacy space and you realize that there are people fighting for bike-friendly policies every day and for infrastructure every day, and glad to glad to play some small part in that. So, uh, 
I think Mo mentioned kind of her background. Where did you come from before you got into bike advocacy? Uh, you were policy related, so maybe public policy? Or... <laughs> no, the opposite, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, communications and journalism. I studied journalism. Um, I grew up in Denver, but uh, studied journalism in, in Washington State and moved back to Denver a few years ago. And, and you know, even then I noticed that the bike infrastructure here wasn't as friendly as it was in Seattle. And I thought Denver had room to improve. Uh, and then I, I was working at a, a school in communications, but, but also teaching a bike at bike course to middle schoolers. And, um, you know, that really kind of is, is how I ended up where I am today. Um, how long have you both been at bicycle Colorado? So I've been at BC about, is it four years now? About four years. Um, they've, those years have gone by fast. And I think most of our team has still been around in, in that time. And I was just behind Mo. I've been there like three and, three and a quarter years, something like that, since 2017. I'm always happy to get veterans on the Colorado Energy <laughs> Leaders podcast. So y'all have been doing this for a bit. That's cool. Uh, going back to what you said, Jack, I do find the biking community and the biking advocacy community is a very fun and upbeat community to, to be involved in. So it sounds like, obviously, I'm sure there are aspects of your job that are you know, more work. Uh, but it's definitely a place I imagine is filled with a lot of fun, too, to be able to interact with that community. Yeah, you know, I think we, we have everybody who bikes has something in common. Um, and so it, it is a really strong community generally a really fun community. Uh, we all approach it from our own perspectives. And, you know, something that, that we're doing at Bicycle Colorado, we're trying to do is, is just make it more and more inclusive and, and build representation. So people see themselves uh, when they think of bicyclists and they don't just see uh, white men who are riding bikes. So we're really trying to, to change the, the face of, of bicycling in that way and just bring more people into the fold and build the community even stronger. I think representation and inclusion in, in bicycling is is very important. Um, there's a lot of aspects of it that are very visible and approachable to certain people, but not to others. And I'm excited to talk a little about that today. Uh, so I guess that's a good lead into, uh, could you all explain what Bicycle Colorado is and maybe a little bit of what it isn't? Sure, I'll get us, I'll get us started. Uh... So Bicycle Colorado, we are a statewide member-supported advocacy organization and a nonprofit. Um, we, we clearly, as you heard from Jack, have our policy arm. So building relationships with electeds um, and government agencies, both local and statewide, uh, advocating for infrastructure funding, ballot initiatives. Uh, and then we have our education programs as well. So working with um, youth and adult riders, beginner riders, different uh, ages and abilities, um, and doing both in-person and, and during the times of COVID, doing some virtual teaching and instruction. Um, and then we also offer programs uh, to professionals like conferences and, and learning and education opportunities. And I'll just add to that, you know, we, we work statewide. We do have a Denver-specific arm. Um, and the idea behind that is that you know, if Colorado's going to be one of the best places to ride a bike in the country, then Denver kind of needs to needs to lead the way there. So we take things in Denver that we're learning through the Denver Streets Partnership, our, our Denver arm, and 
we kind of try and apply those to different communities around the state and and see what works. Um, and I should say we we're wanting to to think more broadly and represent different types of riders who ride for recreation and also those who ride for transportation, whether that's by choice or or out of necessity. Um, and I think that we're not we're certainly not the only um, bicycle advocacy group um, acknowledging that and, and transitioning in that way. Yeah, we were. If I can add to that, you know, we were at, uh, founded in 1992 and we really were created to serve recreational riders and, and road riders in particular. And in the past few years, we've, we've shifted more to a transportation focus because we see the benefits of biking in our environment and in our communities and um, in our air quality. So biking really can be a tool for solving a lot of these problems. And we, we've made that shift in recent years. I do, I think it's also important to add that Right. As advocates, we're thinking about where everyone is coming from. And that that includes drivers um, and people who are maybe in a place like where Jack and I were before without realizing right, the benefits of bicycling or these different transportation options or our privilege in being able to choose how we get around. Um, and so making sure that we're approaching conversations with with drivers or with, with uh, decision makers who don't quite um, who are not quite where where we're at um, and making sure that that we're we're meeting them where they are at. Thank you. Thank you both for all of that. Uh, with two people not in the same room, it's a little bit hard sometimes. So don't even worry about it. Uh, adding on, I think that's great. And I love hearing you two kind of talk back and forth about the things that Bicycle Colorado does. So I think that's really awesome. Thank you both for all of your, all of your thoughts on, on Bicycle Colorado. I guess one of the things before we dive into a little bit more of the depth of this episode, I wanted to ask about this is I think the world of advocacy can be a bit uh, hard for people who are not in it to understand, you know, what you do on like a day-to-day -day basis or what your kind of uh, the details of the minutia of what it looks like, uh, particularly because I think people are thinking more and more about how they can get involved in advocacy and they, and they think about, you know, where do I start? So I guess kind of round robin style, uh, I guess, Mo, firstly, could you name an example of one of your education programs that you work on that's like a day-to-day -day thing? For uh, well, today's day-to-day -day is, is a lot different than the typical, the typical season. Um, <laughs> But I think, sure, one thing that uh, I'm working on right now is uh, we're partnering with the city of Denver to develop content for some safe routes to school modules that will be going out to, to students and teachers and families. Um, so building up some content for them to use to help educate uh, educate students and, and families. And um, because we, we have limited options of, of how to educate kids through schools is a great way to do that. Thank you. And Jack, from your side of it, kind of on the policy things, uh, could you maybe provide an example of a policy in the last year that really took up a lot of your time or you felt really focused on in terms of uh, getting passed or working with leaders to redraft or, or engineer? I guess? Yeah. So the in the legislature this year, Colorado's legislative session runs typically uh, January through May. Of course, COVID changed everything. But um, in the legislature this year, we passed the what we call the bike lane bill, Senate bill 61. And that bill was defining for a first time a bike lane in Colorado law and establishing that bicyclists and other authorized users, depending on the community, um, have the right of way in the bike lane. So the, the bill really sought to accomplish the right of way, um, you know, 
you're you're not supposed to drive in the bike lane. You're not supposed to park in the bike lane. And it defined a bike lane as as an exclusive space for these users. And the other thing it did is it uh, established that bike lanes exist in an intersection, even when they're not painted. So uh, what that does is it again establishes the right of way, and it prevents or we hope it will prevent uh, what we call right hook crashes and, and left cross crashes, which are, are fairly common. So there's a lot of thinking about minutia, like what is a bike lane? And um, then working with lawmakers and legislators to, to make that happen. Thank you both for that. And I want to dive into a little bit deeper in each of those things in just a minute. But I think for now, that's a pretty good uh, introduction for people to Bicycle Colorado. Before I kind of dive into these things, because I think understanding the minutiae and kind of the impact of your work really requires a basic understanding or at least a, an attempt to quantify how important or how good or how powerful a change bicycles can be on a community. So I've assembled just a couple things that I kind of thought were, were important in terms of factoids. But I guess in your minds, before we, we I, I list off a couple things I wanted to mention, what are some of the major positive benefits of bicycles? Or what are some of the reasons that communities and really energy policy or transportation policy should make space for bicycles, understanding that it is a change? So the U.S., as, as I think we, we all kind of can see, is, is really car dependent, and that has a huge impact on our environment. So in 2017, we, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy, said that every 60% of all car trips taken in the U.S. were six miles or less, uh, and 75% of those of car trips were 10 miles or less. And those are distances that for most people are, are very, very doable by bike. And when you switch to a bike for transportation on those shorter trips, you really make a huge impact on the individual level. And certainly when, when more and more people do, do that, um, it, it impacts the air quality of cities and states. And so we're really, uh, of course, huge on on promoting biking for transportation for those reasons alone and then on top of that there's the physical and mental health benefits that that people see when they ride um and it just it just makes a difference to add on to those those physical and mental health benefits we do have some statistics that we've been getting out there especially during the times of covid um, adults should be getting two and a half hours uh, of moderate activity each week we should see kids getting 60 minutes of, of activity each day. Um, and in terms of mental health, we have 21% um, of a lower health ment uh, mental health burden among cyclists who ride 45 minutes, at least three to five times per week. And we know that, you know, we, as we're working in local communities, are seeing folks want to get outside. They want to get outside. They want to be able to, to recreate and to travel safely in their communities and neighborhoods they may just not have a safe place to do it. Um, so keeping that in mind that we have um, people who are, are in communities that may not have easy access to safe places to ride. Uh, and, and also how the impact that riding a bike uh, and using active modes of transportation has on traffic safety as well. Um, I think that's one thing that um, as an advocacy organization we speak to is how as we reduce cars and motor vehicles on our road, it can also increase community safety. 
further encouraging more people to get out and about uh, by bike or, or foot or, or wheel. Um, so uh, certainly see not only the physical and mental health benefits, but the traf traffic safety benefits. Thank you both for those numbers. And if I may, I'm just gonna add on a couple, a couple things that I find really interesting. Um, I'm not sure, maybe you all have heard it more, but it's almost, I think I've heard it referred to as like taking the green pill when you start to see all the benefits that come from, <laughs> from bicycling. Uh, is that like a phrase in the book? That's not one that I've, I've heard. heard of in podcasts. Well, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun little phrase, right? It's referencing the matrix where you take a pill and you see the world differently. Um, but to me, when I like look at the, the impact that bikes can have, uh, just a couple of numbers to kind of help our audience and to build upon the things you said, uh, of the United States emissions, roughly 25%, around 28% really, uh, come from vehicle emissions. And of those, those vehicles emissions, those transportation emissions, 27% uh, are light duty vehicles. So it's about a quarter of a quarter. Uh, but if you look at that, you know, from an engineering perspective, because a vehicle is both heavy and moves quickly, so it has air friction, but it's essentially 30 to 80 times more efficient in terms of uh, moving people from place to place and moving goods. You know, if you can fit your groceries in a basket, you are using essentially, uh, we'll give a rough number, 50 times less energy than even if you put that same amount of groceries in, in a car. And so if you looked at, you know, essentially taking all of those transportation and light duty vehicle miles uh, and converting them to a bicycle, just, you know, an order of magnitude difference in our emissions. And then the, the other side that I think is really interesting is land use for cities. Um, and this is where, where I've heard people talk about taking the green pill is, uh, you know, essentially the average person, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, uh, travels about 22 day miles per day by car and spends 45 minutes a day in traffic. There is actually this really interesting blueprint for, blueprint for Denver done by the Frontier Group that suggested that this amounted to about $700 of lost time and fuel per household per person that drives. And that's not even counting the cost of ownership. Right. That's just you sitting in traffic. And then the other thing about it was uh, Denver City has about 37,000 acres and roughly 60% of that is devoted to parking. So at about 22,000 acres, which is roughly 67%, um, if we begin to value that land, you know, it's, it's over uh, uh, $2 billion by one estimate. And the CDOT, the Colorado Department of Transportation budget is $2 billion a year. And so it's just... Uh, I don't know, when I start to walk through cities thinking about how much is devoted to cars and the things that we could get by having a more bike-centric uh, transportation uh, within cities, I think is really, is really powerful. I don't know. I haven't heard some of those before. I am very familiar with Denver's parking deserts, uh, <laughs> but, but those are some good figures to put behind it. You know, another, another thing when you mentioned the, the green pill that I thought you were going to mention is, is how we, we actually literally see the world differently or our route and how we navigate our communities is so different when we get on a bike um, and everything that it exposes us to and the things we see and notice that we may not when we're behind a windshield or, or inside a motor vehicle. I think that's a, a huge benefit as well and how it connects us with each other and nature and, and our physical environment. I love that you mentioned that it changes our route and how we interact with the city. Um, I have lived in cities where I either had to walk or bike the entire time and I didn't own a car. Mm -hmm. And it was funny how much I like knew the city better or like knew the local shops or where to get the best. Uh, I was in Paris at the time, so get a baguette. I'll, I'll mention that one. <laughs> but no, it changes how you, how you interact with your community, I think. 
Uh, the last two things I'll mention just kind of in terms of the quantifiable benefits before we dive into some of your work specifically is I think sometimes we mention these numbers and we mention them vaguely, but every time that these numbers come up, I think it's important to also mention that these numbers aren't priceless or they have a specific price that they are attached to them and the mm -hmm. tax is being burdened by the community. So the people who are paying for that road to sit there with a parking meter that does not reach does not adequately compensate for it is the community and by repurposing some of that space to be more friendly to alternative uses the community is getting something back and i'll also just mention you know in 2018 um a more chilling number is you know we had roughly 33,000 motor vehicle deaths caused by by light duty vehicles or, or cars and those numbers are related to the speed and uh kind of freedom with which we allow people to to own motor vehicles and, and take them uh, it's almost expected that we can take them to anywhere at any time and that's a burden that's a that's a liberty that mm -hmm. comes with a heavy price i think so i guess kind of shifting gears from kind of the high levels of the quantifications i was hoping to start with you mo really on the education programs i guess uh, it sounds, you know, you mentioned the preparing materials for local schools and communities, uh, but you have a couple of different types of education programs that you that you work with. Some of them geared towards children and some of them geared towards other kids. Absolutely, absolutely. So I had mentioned safe routes to school. Um, the, the city of Denver has its own program. There are a lot of local um, local municipalities that, that have a local program. And there's also uh, CDOT, this um, Colorado Department of Transportation has a grant opportunity. So this essentially is uh, the, the goal of, of increasing um, active transportation to school. So walking, rolling, and, and biking to school. Uh, it's, you know, we see those rates of, of using active transportation to get to school have significantly decreased. So Bicycle Co uh, Colorado collaborates with schools and districts and cities to uh, educate children and families about traffic safety. Uh, that's something that it baffles me that it's not part of the, the curriculum because it is certainly a life skill and is a way that um, folks can stay active, uh, but it's not necessarily part of, of the health or the physical education curriculum. So we'll come in and visit with our bikes, uh, give uh, presentations on signs and signals and um, how to properly fit a helmet and a bike. Uh, and so that's that's always a fun um, fun thing we do, do during the school year is is visit schools. We host uh, bike rodeos for youth as well, obstacle courses where they can ride, uh, and then always want to supplement those uh, rodeos um, and also offer as a, a public lesson learn to ride. So making sure that kids have an opportunity to ride a bike. Uh, or learn to balance and pedal for the first time. And we also serve adults through our Learn to Ride lessons. Uh, it's, I think, something that we take for granted if we know how to bike and live in Colorado, assume that everyone does. But we're really excited about our Learn to Ride program um, that we've had for about five seasons now, where we use our our step-step gliding method and, and are quite successful at getting most of our uh, students to pedal for um, the first time within their two-hour lesson. So that's, that's one of them, uh, our Learn to Ride. We, we really love that. And it's certainly a really impactful, um, impactful program. We have a lot of folks who come from uh, adults in particular who have had financial or cultural barriers that keep them from riding a bike. And then of course, for kids, that dynamic with, um, with their adult, with their grown up, is sometimes a little complicated in the context of learning a new skill. So we get to help out um, there as well. 
I want to ask a little bit. So firstly, I love bike rodeos. Bike yeah. rodeos are just adorable. Very fun times. Good for the whole family. Uh, what are some of the things that are, I guess, coming as someone who probably came into this advocacy group knowing how to ride, as you were teaching people, what were some of the major, if there were any like misconceptions among youth and maybe even adults about bicycle safety or bicycle Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think for youth, it's kids ride bikes to have fun. Um, so we certainly want them to do that. That's what, what's going to keep them riding, but making sure that they're aware of what they can be doing to, to help keep themselves safe. Um, and adults too, right? Adults don't necessarily know what skills they should be teaching kids to handle their bike. Um, it's not just about rules of the road um, and, and, and our sig signs and signals and following those, but, but also how to safely um, operate a bike. And so that's what our bike uh, rodeos are for where they can practice using their brakes and looking over their shoulder and scanning and using their turns um, as a, and signaling their turns. So I think that's, um, you know, keeping the fun uh, at the same time as, as focusing on um, the fact that, that kids need to, um, uh, as, as much as they can be predictable, the kids will be kids though as well. So, um, and you know, for, for adults, I think it's, um, I, I think we, again, when we have adults come to us that have never ridden before, there's a huge fear, a huge sense, sense of fear in just getting on a bike. You know, dis not, not even um, the traffic safety piece, but just sitting on a bike for the first time. Um, and, and sometimes some, some shame. We've had a number of people reach out uh, who want to learn and, and are, are embarrassed that they haven't learned to ride as an adult. Um, so it's, it's, you know, our, our responsibility to create that safe space and, and let them know that they are not alone. And, um, just that, again, we've created this, um, this culture where it's expected that people know how to ride a bike and that's not the case. So I think that's what we're trying to sometimes correct in terms of adults and those misconceptions when we're working with new riders. One of the reasons that I both wanted to talk to, uh, Bicycle Colorado or about Bicycle Colorado, and to reach out particularly to people involved in the education, is I feel like sometimes, especially this year, is, it's a little bit of a rough year, and so I like to hear good stories, and I think the education aspect is is just a really neat thing of their advocacy groups that kind of go into communities and try to, try to help them uh, with this. I guess, is there anything you can share a little bit about the impact you've had, whether that's even, either, you know, an anecdotal story of an individual that you worked with that was really kind of encouraging to you, or maybe even just some of the, the, uh, statistics or numbers around, you know, kind of the reach or yeah, so we, we've had a number of stories again, teaching a, a first time rider is always really exciting, but we also have had a few situations where, Folks have been in a crash and they are so fearful to get back on a bike. Um, so there was one woman in particular who used to ride for transportation. She was in a crash and came back to us for to our learn to ride class um, to try again and, and build that confidence back up. So that was really rewarding. And similarly, we had um, someone join us who was a veteran um, and had had lost a leg. And he was riding a bike, but got in a severe crash. Uh, and so when he was trying to get back on his bike was not only navigating, you know, the fear of um, having been in a crash, but finding his rebalance again um, and, and that steadiness with 
um, you know, with his, his lost limb. So that was a, a really fantastic story. He reached out to us afterwards. We crossed paths again at a tabling event and, and he just spoke about how, what an impact or, or what a uh, incredible opportunity that was to, to bring him back onto the bike. Um, we, we've had about four, what is it? It's only about four seasons, even though this is our fifth, we weren't able to host Learn to Ride uh, lessons uh, on bike and in person, but we've, we've taught about 400 folks to ride. Um, we have one to two to three lessons each month, depending on, um, depending on those last four seasons and uh, teach about eight students in each class. So it is a pretty small, um, a, a small class size and that's to make sure that each student gets the attention they need and, and has enough time on the bike. Uh, so we've, we've reached out uh, between four and 500 folks um, and it's it's really great. We do a follow up survey where we're asking uh, what how how often are they riding now? For what purpose do they ride? Uh, I should have pulled some of those numbers, but that really allows us to see not only the impact and you know and the um, feeling of accomplishment the day of, but how this is impacting them moving forward. I think so. Firstly, it sounds like you've been at Bicycle Colorado for four years, and since you've been doing this for four seasons now, it sounds like this might really be kind of like your child when it comes to a program or your your. I don't know. Well, I can't that, take the credit right for starting really? it, um, <laughs> and I, I would, you know, it's certainly a team effort to build it. But um, we folks came to us asking for private lessons, and that's how um, the former director. Um, launched this program was because of the demand for, for private lessons. And so when I got on board, it was just the second season. Um, we had, I think, one location where we were hosting it, and we've since expanded to three locations. Um, and, and that allows us to have a greater reach. Um, and, and these classes really do sell out. So it's been great to see that demand. And, and I can say it's really come without, without a ton of promotion. This is just a significant gap in the area um, of, of a, a safe and, and welcoming space to learn to ride a bike. And we also provide bikes as well. So that um, eliminates a barrier. And I'll note that Mo is being a little bit humble there with a couple of those uh, testimonials. The, the gentleman that she spoke about who had lost his leg, he actually told us that he, through tears, told us we saved his life. Um, he was really, really grateful to be able to get back on a bike. And um, that's that's because of our education team. To, and volunteers, I will say. We've got this, again, this program brings in volunteers and they come back again and again. So we're grateful for them as well. Uh, I want to just take a second and kind of address a question that I think may be forming in my listeners' mind is like, why are we talking so much about education? Uh, the way I wanted to just uh, pull back the court curtain, a lit, think, curtain a little bit, think through this podcast is really talk high level about the value that bicycles can play. But I think sometimes we just don't spend enough time talking about the grassroots in-person efforts that go behind the scenes to make it possible for 400 people to learn how to ride, you know? And I think it's just so important to set the table of, you know, these are the, these are what we're trying to get towards, but the steps to do that are so much more granular than, you know, the Green New Deal or kind of like these massive, uh, really flashy things. There are people like Mo, yourself, and Jack, and, and policy is important, and I do want to talk about policy before we end on this on this episode, but just it's people like yourselves that are in this kind of day in and day out doing these programs that sometimes are thrown off by the pandemic and you're now preparing material for schools instead of 
teaching the way you probably want to. Uh, but I just think it's really important to spend that time talking about, you know, the visceral, what it takes to make. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, we talk about infrastructure a lot uh, and you can build that infrastructure and the riders who are comfortable already will, will ride that infrastructure. But if you're not creating programs to, to introduce new riders to that, um, to the space or to even get more riders on bikes and make them feel comfortable riding for transportation, um, if you don't have those supports, then, you're really just serving the, the riders who are maybe already riding. Um, and, and I think not only bicyclist education, but, but when we talk about driver education, um, it's, this is another one of our programs. And that's just, I think, such an untapped resource of, of taking a close look at our driver education system and how that um, discourages even the most confident riders um, from continuing to ride on the street. Um, there was an original curriculum that was developed out of Fort Collins um, and then went national and, and different groups were adapting it and tailoring it to their local communities. And we've um, done that in Colorado and been really excited about helping uh, drivers understand infrastructure and new road users and laws that apply to interactions between bicyclists and drivers. I have, I have one more question I want to ask about your education program. And I think that is uh, just really cool that you tailor it to, 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 uh, automobile drivers as well. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to add just to really kind of champion your work and explain the importance I think of it is in the beginning, we talked a little bit about the kind of engineering uh, elegance of bicycles, their efficiency, their lack of uh, emissions, their kind of impact upon communities and, and values. And it's funny because I, I talk a lot with engineers and they always kind of scratch their head, like, why aren't people using X technology because it's more efficient and it's clean and it's valuable? And they don't stop to think enough about kind of the human aspect. And I think that's what, you know, bicycles have all these like spreadsheet worth of, of uh, things that they are, are better at. But your work, the teaching and the interacting with people who are first time riders, I think really moves the needle from just a spreadsheet of of factoids around how good bicycling is to people implementing them in their communities. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, again, I, I love building relationships. <laughs> I love the education side of things. And um, it's really, again, it can can change, um, you know, people's lives when they, they experience the freedom of riding a bike. And it can also change um, change communities as well as a whole. In the, in the beginning of this episode, both you and Jack kind of talked a little bit about also having uh, inclusion with bicycling and equity and availability to access. I guess as the person who's in charge and really seen, you know, hundreds of people learn to ride, what can you say about like your inclusion efforts and how you tailor curriculum to different communities or some of the barriers of different communities? Uh, Jack mentioned, you know, some of the things around race and then also gender with biking. I don't know how that plays into your work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really and I think, frightened. you know, I can speak to it in education and it's certainly um, relevant in communications and who we're representing through our communications and who we're serving through policy. Um, and I might even get to the, into that a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, access to programming is one thing. Um, but you to ride a bike, you need access to a bike. Um, and so as we have a lot of partners in, in the Denver community, and there was certainly a lot of um, excitement around and efforts to, to get bikes in the hands of, of people who really need them once once COVID hit. Um, so you can't really educate unless folks have access to a bike that they can continue riding. Um, so I think that that's a barrier that, that we overlook um, in addition to education. And a lot of what I've been speaking to around feeling safe on a bike um, is in reference to traffic safety. 
Um, and so as we're working on our education programs and trying to create more opportunities for people to ride, um, we're also thinking about safety, uh, personal safety, and what that means for a person of color navigating a space um, and what law enforcement looks like um, and whether in, in you know, the mind of, of our traditional ridership, law enforcement and police are, are a form of, of safety and security. Uh, and for others, that's certainly not the case. And we've, we've seen that play out. Um, so thinking about some of those other structural barriers um, that are not infrastructure, it's not access to a biker programming, but um, different lim things that limit people um, as they try to navigate space and communities. Um, and, and I think that that has shifted our thinking again ac across the organization. Uh, one final question I have just kind of on it as well. Uh, when I was in college, they always mm -hmm. had these bike maintenance class classes. Do you also do stuff around kind of like bike ownership and bike maintenance? Or we, is that you know, we have in, in the last few months, we've done a number of bike maintenance webinars. So we've got gotten creative in the virtual space and had a few different cameras hooked up and made sure that our, our audience could see what was happening on the bike and, and get really up close and personal. Um, typically, and our uh, my my colleague Chris was doing that out of his garage, where he has every tool imaginable. Um, <laughs> our our team, our education team, did not have that many tools, um, and we just generally haven't you know worked or focused in that space of of maintenance. Um, we've we've done some some high level workshops, but we have some really great partners and bike shops in the community. Um, bike shops, of course, that will will fix your bike, but also um, shops like Bikes Together that not only provides bike repair services, but opportunities to get to know your bike better and actually repair and fix your bike. So we, um, other than these virtual webinars, have usually brought in um, partners or referred folks to partners where they can really learn hands-on um, in a bike shop setting. Uh, so I think now is probably a good point to shift gears a little bit, because as I mentioned, uh, the structure of this episode, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the impact that bicycles could potentially have, particularly on our cities, uh, and then really have some time to talk about education. But all of that also has to be backed up a little bit by policy, and particularly uh, with Jack on, on this episode as well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the barriers to bicycling that are more structural. Uh, so maybe not an individual choice and maybe not, uh, you know, some of the impacts that bicycles can have, but some of the choices that policymakers uh, enact that either enable bicycles or really uh, reinforce that bicycles aren't welcome in a, in a space. So I guess, Jack, kind of shifting over to you, um, what are some of, the, some of the biggest challenges or biggest uh, policy-based challenges to address from uh, the bicycle? Yeah, uh, that's a great uh, question. I, I'll start by speaking on kind of an individual level, and, and that's just by describing different types of bicyclists. So there was a study out of Portland uh, 10 or so years ago that's very recently been kind of reaffirmed by Denver um, about the four types of bike riders. And so they can be broken up into to four categories. About 3% of bike riders are what we call everyday, like no matter the conditions, bicyclists. Um, they'll ride in any weather on any infrastructure um, with a few exceptions, of course. Then there's about 7% uh, who are confident, uh, but will you know, if it's raining, they'll, they'll choose their car. Or if it's snowing, you know, that kind of thing. 
Then on the other side of the spectrum, there's 30% of people who we call no way, no how bicyclists, just no matter what, they're not going to ride a bike. Um, but then there's 60% in there remaining. That's we, we call them the interested, but concerned. And so if, if we build infrastructure and if we shape policies that encourage that 60% of people to, to try biking just even once, um, we're confident that, that it can draw this kind of culture change. And so it's really focusing on, on that group of individuals that um, I think is where we can have the biggest impact. And a big part of that to get to the more structural level is infrastructure funding. Um, there is, infrastructure is certainly not the only answer, but there are, there's a lot of info out there that just speaks to the value of safe, comfortable, accessible places to ride your bike. So, you know, in Denver, in Boulder, in Fort Collins, we have these very extensive trail systems, uh, Cherry Creek Trail, the Goose Creek Trail up in Boulder. And, um, you know, people flock to them because they're safe, they're beautiful um, and attractive, and people just want to go ride to them. And they're also convenient ways to get around town. Um, meanwhile, if you just have you know, some paint on the street that's some paint that's dividing you from drivers who are traveling 40 miles an hour, that feels really uncomfortable. Um, so getting uh, policymakers to, to buy into creating safe and accessible and comfortable and, uh, again, kind of attractive infrastructure is a really important piece of this. Um, well, what I was going to kind of ask though about, and I think what I wanted to pull apart a little bit with the policy is it seems like, um, I guess I'll make two points that I kind of mm -hmm. want to, to get your take on it from a policy perspective. The first one is, you know, a lot of people, uh, so we've been talking about bikes pretty graciously and we've kind of almost, uh, not taken into account in this conversation, any of the mm -hmm. people who might say like a bike not, might not work in my situation. And I've kind of been intentional for that because the reason that bikes work for as few of trips as they do for a few, as few of people as they do is by design. Um, it isn't an accident that we have made it the status quo to drive to work and people who live further away from their work, uh, right now a bike would not work from the, for them, but the reason they live far away is, is also a policy mechanism that we've made it so accessible to drive that far by car. And so it's not, it's, it doesn't, the, the, the common complaints I would say against bicycles aren't out of thin air, they're, they're by design. And it seems like, so that's kind of, I guess, my first point. And my second point is, it seems like some of the goal of the policy is to get to a tipping point. Because, uh, so my hometown, Preston, Idaho, uh, where I grew up, actually, I just installed a bike lane. And it's funny talking to some of my family members back there, because they, they have feelings about it. It's a really small town. It's like 5,000 people. Um, and so the bike lane isn't very well used. And I'm not surprised at all because, uh, like you said, just installing a bike lane doesn't change the expectation. The fact that the bike lane is still second place to driving to the front door of the restaurant and walking 10 feet in is, is still the status quo. And it seems like there's uh, either a lag or a tipping point or a, a level of resources that have to go in to really the whole community being bought into biking rather than just, you know, a, a kind of one-off project here and there. And it seems like that's kind of the, the challenge to me from a policy perspective that finds a lot of parallels throughout other energy projects where you have kind of one really 
cool idea, but it actually, there are all these other stress points that prevent even just a significant investment, but an investment only in one area from having instant impact. And it really takes kind of years of established policy and focus to, to get to that tipping point of bikes are actually the, the best way to get around. You yeah. Know, so there's a few points in there that I, I want to respond to. So um, you're right. We are in this status quo that we're not even aware that we're in where driving is the natural driving is the default. Um, and that does impact decision-making of policymakers. And one of the ways that it impacts is, is just with funding. And so, you know, I, I might get myself in a little bit of trouble here with these numbers because um, I would have to search for, for the, <laughs> the citation, but um, you know, yeah, just go for it. Um, it's a so podcast. It costs Jack. like you're great. $10 million a mile <laughs> for some highway projects um, to, you know, expand a lane, something like that. Um, it costs about $1 million for a mile of protected bike lane. So there's a huge cost differential between those two. And one is much more efficient than the other. And that's a bike lane. So um, on top of that, there's just perception. You know, you said that your, your um, bike lane in, was it Preston, Idaho? You know, that might just be perception. When you're, when you're looking at a bike lane downtown, in Denver, for instance, you know, if you see six cars that are take, you know, going half the distance of the block, uh, and you see six bicyclists, they're taking up about, you know, 12 square or maybe 36 square feet of space on bicycles leads to a, a perception of, of just a lack of use, I think, because, you know, six cars can take up half a block of space. Meanwhile, six bicyclists take up maybe 30, 36 square feet of space in a bike lane. And so a bike lane can appear empty, but it's actually acting much more efficiently than a lane that's typically used by motor vehicles. So that's one thing I want to say. Um, you also address distance and how, you know, we're trained to just drive really far. There's a new technology or not even new at this point, but um, certainly growing in America, and that's e-bikes. And e-bikes have been proven by many studies, um, including one by the National Institute of Transportation and Communities, to increase the distance that people can bike. And a lot of Americans um, are buying them specifically to replace cars because they can go farther, they can haul more weight and cargo, and it really is a, a total game changer in that space. And then, you know, the final thing I'll say as far as perception goes is the cost of this status quo on the individual level, which is car ownership costs Americans a lot of money every single year. In 2018, AAA said it was something like $8,000 uh, to own a car on average in the United States per household. Um, meanwhile, a bike, it can cost, you know, you can buy a used bike for Fifty dollars. Um, I think I wouldn't recommend one for fifty, but you can you can buy a really good used bike for for five hundred dollars, and the cost of maintenance is maybe two hundred dollars a year if you're getting it a full tune up every year. So um, the cost differential there is just huge, and that is part of this this status quo that we we are living in. 
Yeah, I think, uh, thank you so much. Uh, firstly, thank you for pushing back on my underused bike lane uh, hypothesis. Um, but no, I think it's interesting because, you know, I love biking. Downtown Golden, I think, has, has reasonable bike accommodations. And I love biking downtown and seeing other bikers. And a lot of times in some places that have just a kind of one-off policies, you don't see a lot of them. And I think visibility is important for the biking community so that, you know, people see bikers out and about. Um, no, I want to I wanna have just kind of one more little bit oh. of a uh, tangent here before I actually end with a lightning round. I have a little lightning round for everyone today. So it's going to be fun for Mo and Jack. Uh, but the other thing I want to mention is this invisible economy, because um, going back to, you know, the purpose of this podcast is about energy um, and bicycles are a part of energy, particularly as it comes to transportation and emissions. Uh, but in energy, there's a lot of discussions about how much it will cost to transition to a clean economy. And I think I really hate the way those conversations are framed because we're already paying money for a dirty economy. Like you said, it's $10 million a mile. Uh, maybe that number isn't quite right or probably has some variability, I would guess, in there. I'd, I'd probably be more comfortable with a range on that, right, depending upon where you're at. You know, but just to keep up that, you know, like I mentioned, the, the Colorado Department of Transportation has $2 billion a year, and a good chunk of that is just in maintaining the roads. And... Those are maintaining systems that aren't even that effective at some of the things that we currently try to task them to do, like uh, heavy freight transportation really should be done probably in a different way. Or, And so I think it's really important to kind of draw attention to this invisible economy that maintains the status quo in that as we're considering these expenditures on clean energy, I really like to frame them as investments in, in novel ways that could be rethought of, you know, it would be so much nicer if in 20 years from now, uh, my kids had the opportunity to live in a community where biking was the norm. And the way we get there is by starting now to peel back some of these policies that really didn't favor clean energies and making it more accessible. And so I just kind of want to end on that. And I 100% agree. I and I'll, I'll just throw um, one more set of numbers in there for you. I um, you know, we, a lot of people point to European cities and Copenhagen in particular as, as a model city for bicyclists and, and it works just better for people in general. Um, there was a study out of Copenhagen recently, uh, in 2017, and these numbers are converted from Danish kroners and kilometers to miles, but, um, but accurate to the study, I promise this time, um, and they said that for every mile of uh, every mile you travel by bike, society gains a dollar and twenty cents. For every mile you travel by car, society loses a dollar and thirty-four cents. And so that's a two dollar fifty cent differential per mile per um, person. And so that's that's a really really interesting way to put it and the cost of maintenance is is huge and you know there's so many people who think that the gas tax is how we pay for roads and that's not true either um you know sales tax income tax um there's arguments all the time about you know bicyclists don't belong on the road because they don't pay their way and that's just just not accurate um because bicyclists do pay their way and they do most also drive <laughs> 
Well, I want to ask, since you brought up that study, uh, what are some of the, in the study you cited, what are some of the ways you mentioned that every mile uh, generates revenue? What are some of the things they were taking into account? I can imagine a few, but I want to make sure to, to check in with you on that, because that sounds like that's a little bit uh, counterintuitive. And so, you know, bicyclists, when you're out riding, you're, you're taking care of your health. And so you're saving yourself and your, your community money in that regard. Um, you're certainly saving money on the cost of gas um, and the cost of automobile ownership and maintenance. And then in addition, you're just simply not doing thousands of pounds worth of damage to the road. And that's, of course, the the dollars lost per mile that comes with driving. Thank you both so much, Mo and Jack. It's been so lovely. Um, this is a, an awesome conversation. So I wanna just go ahead and end uh, kind of the detailed part of this with a little bit of a lightning round. All right, so here we go. I'll give you, a, I'll, give, I'll shoot them out and you can, I wonder both of you can answer a chip in and we'll, we'll keep the answers short as we, as we wrap up here. But firstly, uh, scooters and electric uh, scooters. Yes, are, I would they argue belong yes. to the bike lanes or no? <laughs> they, they're two wheeled devices and legally they are allowed in okay. the bike lane. Legally. Um, they are one of the other authorized users. Um, and so with bicycles and scooters, if they're allowed in the bike lane, are they allowed in the sidewalk or when you see bicyclists kind of jumping back? And I can, forth, I can respond a, to that. No, no, That's kind of a bicycle friendly thing. driver question we get a lot. Um, so bicyclists statewide are allowed on the sidewalk unless there is a local ordinance that restricts or prohibits sidewalk riding. Um, also statewide, bicyclists on the road are a vehicle or bikes on the road are a vehicle. And when they are in a crosswalk, they are considered a pedestrian and have the same rights and responsibilities as a pedestrian. So it's a little bit complicated, um, but I would say check with your local ordinance and see if there are any restrictions on uh, bikes riding on the sidewalk. Great. Um, and then, so third lightning round question, um, bicyclist behavior at stoplights and stop signs, they have kind of a, a little bit of a, a difference from cars. What is, what is the rules? Uh, the the answer to most of these lightning round questions is it's complicated. <laughs> um, <laughs> In Colorado, there are five communities where bicyclists <laughs> are allowed to treat stop signs as yield signs and stop lights as stop signs. And those communities are Aspen, Dillon, Breckenridge, Summit County, and Thornton. Um, elsewhere, you are supposed to stop. And that is a rational safety reason behind that. I think motorists see that and think a little bit uh, badly. It does. It increases uh, visibility. It, it, um, it reduces crashes. Correct. Uh, and we always like to use crashes instead of accident. Um, that's one of our education tools that we use. Um, accident implies inevitability. Um, but yes, so the, the safety stop, as we call it, it's also commonly known as the Idaho stop, uh, reduces injuries, reduces crashes, and keeps bicyclists safer. Um, so final lightning on question. Um, Colorado is a cold state. We have we have harsh winters. What are some tips for people riding oh, you want this one? Bar mitts that attach to your handlebars and they and they cover, they have a very uh -huh. wind um, and cold proof material that that keep your hands warm. I think extremities are are what can get the most cold and uncomfortable. And just layers. Um, like any Colorado winter outing. Biking is very, very doable if you just have layers and and prepare for the cold. Uh, so that's pretty much everything on the podcast that I want to cover today. I want to say thank you both so much for taking the time and for the work you do to just uh, have this conversation. Because I think bicycles, while not traditionally thought of in the energy sense, are so important.
Um, so I guess the last thing I want to ask is, uh, where can we find you? You can find us at www.bicyclecolorado.org. And we are a member-supported nonprofit, and um, you can find the donation link on the website. And with that, we'll go ahead and end this episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. Thank you so much to all of my listeners during this time. Uh, really uh, hope you're all doing well out there, and, and stay safe, and, and, and bike a little. <laughs>